Today, today, we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments, not the movie, so sorry to all you Charlton Heston fans, uh, he won't be making a, an appearance up on the big screen, but I have heard it said, I did not just make this up, that you can tell how good a preacher is by the number of points there are in his sermon. Now, now, I know what you're thinking, Jerry, he's a solid three-pointer, I mean, in the preaching game, he's a three-point shooter. Uh, shooting those J's all day long. He's in here actually shooting three-pointers just to practice. But today for you, I have a ten-point sermon, right? Ten commandments, ten points. I bet you never see it coming. Yeah, yeah. So buckle up. Load up the pickup. Buckle up. We're going to town. Not exactly, but it would be kind of dumb to have a sermon on the ten commandments and not go over the ten commandments. So we're going to do a little bit of that today. Uh, Gary Alsby, a writer, says that the Ten Commandments stand out as a framework onto which all the other laws were built. These laws became the backbone of the Israelite society. Now, these laws in Exodus 34:28 are said to be the word of the covenant, the ones that were written on the tablet. Today, my goal is to parallel the Israelites' exodus into their freedom and journey all the way to Jesus to something that you and I might all be able to relate to. At some point, I'm going to assume you were a child. So we're going to talk about growing up. All right? Let's pray, and we'll get into this. Father, thank you so much for giving us the time to come And to just focus on you, right now we're going to look at your timeless commandments uh, that have set the standards for morality for centuries and centuries. And and we ask you to speak to us through them. Help us see how they can have a good effect on our lives. And may we see their purpose clearly. And may we just submit to you in everything that we do. Father, right now I ask that you will give me the words to say that you want me to say and take away the words that you don't want me to say. And open up our hearts, God. Amen. Okay. So, after being led out of Egypt by Moses, following the great I Am that we sing about, and finally freed from slavery, little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Israel finally was given life and freedom into a new world. In fact, there was much celebration. If you will turn with me to Exodus 15. We'll start there. In Exodus 15, you will see the song of Moses and Miriam. Now, I would set up here and sing it for you. It's a lovely, lovely tune, but I don't think you want to hear me try to sing this. Um, But trust me, there was lots of celebrations. They even used tambourines. It was awesome. But then, just like any child being born, there's a lot of celebration right at the beginning, but immediately starts the crying, (laughs) the whining, the complaining. So, just like that, just like a child is born in a complete state of dependency, I mean, it can't even hold its head up, straight. It relies on its mother for everything. The Israelites were completely dependent on the God that led them out. Completely dependent for food, for everything. And 
in verse 22 of 15, you will see that they came to Mara and they found water, but it was bitter. And they didn't like it, so they complained and grumbled to Moses. So God showed Moses a piece of wood. He picked up the piece of wood. God told him to throw it into the water, and the water became sweet. I wish God could solve my problems like that. Please, just God, please give me a stick that I can throw out my problems and make it all better. That would be really nice. But, nope, that's what he did for Moses, to make it sweet, and they drank to their fill. Then, at the end of 15, you can see they're like, okay, Dad's like, okay, we're buckling up. We've got to set some, set some ground rules. Uh, I've got to just say a few words. And in verse 26, you can see God saying, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Right off the back, you see God leaning down to his son Israel and saying, My son, listen to my words. Pay attention to my teaching. But they go on. Chapter 16, they complain about not having food. And they grumble. And God gives them manna. Manna is the bread from heaven. The word actually means, what is it? Because it just kind of happened. They're like, what is it? And like, I don't know. I guess we'll call it, what is it? It sounds a little bit more elegant, you know, like manna from heaven. But it's really just, what is it? And he gave them manna in the morning and quail in the evening. Then in 17... Once again, they didn't have water. They complained and whined about not having water. So God led Moses to a rock, and he had them strike it with the same staff that he struck the Red Sea, and out came water, and they drank to their fill. Isn't it strange how God still listens to our grumbling? We don't know really what we want. We just have these desires, and we kind of complain and try to fight to get our way. And yeah, God might not give us what we exactly ask for, but he'll give us what we need. He provides for us. Sometimes nothing more, but he provides for us. Then in chapter 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes in to visit. And he sees Moses sitting there all day trying to handle all their disputes. There's so much fighting and bickering that he sat on a chair and he dealt with their disputes and was the one that gave the word of the law of what was right and wrong to his people. And Jethro was like, that's crazy. You're spending way too much time. There's plenty of qualified people here. Assign this job, this position as judge to a lot of your elders and divide up the land and the people and they can go to them for their problems and you can focus on what God is telling you. So he, he listened to his father-in-law's advice and begins to do so. Then we come to chapter 19. Okay, this is where the covenant comes in. Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and each time Moses went up, he came back with a word from God to tell the house of Jacob. The first one, in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 19, it says... 
You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I brought you here to this mountain. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now that second part says, now if you fully keep, if you fully obey and keep my covenant out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possessions. This is the stipulation of the covenant. Of the covenant. He says, you are going to enter into a relationship with me, but it's got to be by your choice. He offers it to them. It's not going to be something he's forcing the Israelites into. They have to choose. And here's the stipulations. You obey God and God alone, and God makes you his chosen people. So he goes back to the elders, and the elders respond, we will do whatever the Lord has said. Then Moses goes, and he starts consecrating the people. He starts to purify them, because he's going to take them to the mountain, and they're going to hear a word from the God, God that they've been following for the first time. He warns them not to touch the mountain, and if anybody... Any animal or person touches it, they are not allowed to live. He goes up to the mountain, and God warns him again for the people not to touch the mountain. And he's like, I got that. We're all good. (laughs) And then he says, also bring up Aaron. So he goes down, warns the people again, brings up Aaron, and we are now to the Ten Commandments. The same Ten Commandments that are said to be written on the tablets, the same Ten Commandments that are the covenant Now, little Israel is about to be giving the rules of the household. Dad is laying down the law for the first time. He's saying, as long as you live in my house, you're going to follow my rules. I think some of us have probably heard that a time or two. Some of us, not me, have probably screamed that at the top of their lungs a time or two to a few children. Because rules are hard. Some, Some people just hate rules. Some people love them like me. I like rules. But some people see rules as something to break, or at least to bend, because it's fun. And the thing is, if you're smart enough, you can do so. You can bend and break as much as you want. And actually, the weird part about it is you can use the Bible to do so, if you're smart enough. Of course, you have to kind of choose selective reading when you're going to the scriptures, Um, But you can convince yourself of anything because you're smart enough and you can justify whatever you want in your own mind using the Bible. It's very strange. But these people typically do not have a listening ear for the Spirit. They're not listening. Just like they have selective reading, they have selective hearing. They're not listening for the conviction of the Spirit. And also, you'll typically find in these people's lives, you won't see any godly community. You won't see any wisdom of older people in their life. You won't see friends that they can go up and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, and them to look at their face and say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Typically, those people have had the same friends for a long time, and it's the same drama, the same everything. Because no one is pushing towards a higher purpose, a higher quality, a higher reason for living. But then there's people like me who have always been okay with rules. 
little tidbit of little seven-year-old me. I remember I got in trouble one time. I was seven years old, and I've told some of the students this, but every time that we got in trouble, we were sent to the bathroom. Why? Because the bathroom was boring. If you got sent to your, your room, there you have all your stuff there. You go to the bathroom and stare at the toilet, okay? So we had this little tiny wooden chair. This is not wooden, but we would sit in it, and we'd stare at the toilet and think of all that we had done. That's what was, that was our task, so we sat there. Sometimes our parents would forget us, and we'd be in there and fall asleep and different stuff like that. But for me, as someone who is very introspective, oh man, that was the worst. Because I would go in there and I would just tear myself apart. Like, I'm like, oh my goodness, why did I do that? Why would I ever do that? Well, oh man, why did I, oh, why, did, why do I break rules? Breaking rules is such a downer on my day. Oh man. And then I would think to myself, wow, it is a downer. Why do I keep on breaking the rules? Because it, it, it keeps me from what I want to do. And I remember sitting there thinking, if I follow the rules, what's going to happen? Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to be safe. I'm going to, I mean, the rules kind of protect me, in a sense. I'm going to probably get along with everybody. Uh, and, and honestly, like, because my, my parents threw a lot of Bible at us. They said, uh, you know, through the honor your father and mother, this is the commandment with a promise to live a long and healthy life, you know? So I was like, honestly, I will probably live longer because I won't do something to destroy myself if I follow all the rules. So that day, as strange as it sounds, I just decided not to do anything wrong again, ever. (laughs) No, there was a couple times, you know, puberty, didn't see that coming. That was a lot of, (laughs) oh man. A lot of flashes of, of anger and crying, and it's a strange time. Uh, but yeah, but generally, I was, I was just like, these are good things, and I chose to follow them. Now, a child has to have rules and guidelines set up in their life. They have to have the law laid down so that they can see that there are consequences for their actions. If they never see the consequences for their actions, I mean, it could be time out or this or that, um, but they'll never feel that because they have this problem with empathy. (laughs) They don't understand that. And if you look carefully at these laws, you'll see that the first four have to deal with God and man and our relationship with God, and the last six have to do with man and each other. It's almost like you could divide it up into love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And wouldn't that be great if I could just end there and be like, do that, right? And if it was that simple, honestly, God probably would have done that too. But we have a hard time as humans loving something with all of our heart, mind, and soul when we can't see it or touch it or talk to it. Shoot, we have a hard time doing that and loving things unconditionally when we can see and touch. You know, we have people sitting next to us right now. That sometimes it's just hard. <laughs> so we have to spell it out for us. And the man and man, like I said, with the small child, we just have a hard time with empathy. So God spells it out for us. At the very beginning in verse 2, God begins by reminding why he is the one making the rules why he's the one making the stipulations of this covenant. He says, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So here we go. Ready? Point one. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Um, This is literally in front of his face. You shall have no one before me. And you might think, yes, this is basic. It's not a big deal. Okay, one God, we get it. But this is not really what the Israelites were used to. You see, they just came from a culture that was polytheistic, the belief in many gods. So this idea of monotheism, the belief in one God, is actually pretty new. At least, I mean, all of them grew up in a culture where multiple gods was just how it rolled. And also keep in mind that many of the early Israel ancestors were probably maybe polytheistic. For example, Rachel, she was someone who took her father's goal, or gods and idols and took them with her on the trip. And some might even argue that Abraham, that until that he heard the call of God, that he was probably polytheistic, and then he chose to follow the one God. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to the thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Also, this would be radically opposed to the culture that they're used to living in. Idols were a part of everything. They were made out of multiple materials, this, that, all for the purpose of aiding worship or to be objects of worship. And also another thing to keep in mind is you see how the effects of choosing who you worship affects generations to come. But mainly look at the comparison. We're talking third and fourth generations for choosing to worship another idol, another god, compared to the thousands of generations. God's trying to say this will benefit you more than just you. It'll begin a legacy for generations to come if you choose to follow my commandments. Normally when people come to this commandment, you hear things like, so what is your idol? Is it that phone in your lap right now? Haven't been able to put that one down, have you? Looking at you in the back. Yeah. Is it your money? Is it your material possessions? Uh, Is it the United States government? Is it your own control? I mean, it's a pretty good, solid punch. But sometimes I have a hard time going that route because I have like missionary friends that like they go into new Christians homes and they're like hey yeah that thing over there with the shrine and the the idol yeah that's an idol you can't have that if you want to choose to follow Jesus whenever it's a little bit more like yeah there's actually idols it makes sometimes this other stuff seem forced but it is definitely a good heart check Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless of its misuse of his name. You see, the Jews were very, very 
particular about this. I mean, they wouldn't even spell out his name when they wrote. It was all abbreviations. <laughs> and when it comes to cursing, I myself think that a lot of that thing, stuff, it just makes you sound unintelligent, so that's why I don't. But when it comes to this, this is the only thing that I will probably stop you in your tracks when you're speaking. Just please don't, don't do that. Using the Lord's name in vain is just, it's just disrespectful, and it makes me uncomfortable. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is your Sabbath to do the Lord, uh, to do the, <clears throat> but the seventh day is the, the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your daughter, nor your manservant, maidservant, nor your animal, nor an alien within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh. Now, notice how God had to list out everything. Because just like you and me, he knew that the Israelites were going to find, try to find loopholes. Okay, I can't work, but my animal can. I can't work, but... I mean, if there's a guest, somebody that's not a Jew, an Israelite, then, you know, they can work. No, God says no one. This is going to be a testament to you being my people. And it's so strange because in the Christian church, we typically don't pay attention to the Sabbath. We don't talk about it. In fact, some would say it's obsolete. But I have a hard time thinking that out of these ten timeless commandments— that there's like one that God just said you can, that's fine, you can throw out. What I want to do is just encourage you to rethink that and maybe find Sabbath and rest in your own life. For me and my family, Sundays <laughs> weren't that day. <laughs> Sundays were crazy. Sundays had way too much family, period. <laughs> Had a, we were in and out of the church serving, doing all these things and those things are good and they can be a refreshment for some people um, but I want to encourage you to, to seek and find out rest read some in Hebrews, check that out in Exodus 31, 13 it says, say to the Israelites you must observe the Sabbaths this is to be a sign between you and me for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy, who sanctifies you. The Sabbath was a day that God had them set apart to allow his work on their life to make them holy. Because there's something about the busyness, monotonous, everyday life where you don't stop and think, you just do. That you can find yourself veering off to the left or right. Sometimes you need a day, an entire day, of doing things completely different to realign you, to put you back on track. Number five, honor your father and mother so that you may live a long and happy life in the land the Lord your God has given you. And we've talked about this. We've talked about yeah, it's a promise because, yeah, it'll prevent you from self-destroying yourself, self-destruction. And God promises that. 
And the fact that the mother and the father are both included is a testament to women being valued in the Israelite system. Would not typically be that during that time. Number six, you shall not murder. You shall not murder, even if someone gets your order wrong at Wendy's. Michael. Here's the thing. Talking about murder, talking about all these things, each one of these could be a sermon in themselves. But I know you don't want that. (laughs) So don't murder. It's bad. It kills people. Okay, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. The covenant of marriage is protected and sanctified. Marriage is a high value and is basic to God's holy desires for his people. That's beautiful that that is in there. You shall not steal. Many of these things that are in this list, I mean, could you imagine if these things were allowed within a community? I mean, if, if stealing was just fine. Do you know how much distrust would be there? A lot of these things are just to keep the community together. I mean, just like your family unit, you have those rules to keep them together. If there's not trust, the community cannot stand. If there's not trust in your home, your house cannot stand. Number nine, should not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, this is a legal term but it's simple enough just to be the bar minimum of don't spread rumors. False testimony. Like, can you listen to something that someone says and to be able to communicate it to someone else verbatim (laughs) or just, like, even close to, like, what their heart was behind it? Or does it go through your selfish filter and come out the other end as something that caused divisions and something that can hurt people Once again, it's trust. Can you take people for their word and relay that on? Number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his manservant, maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's very crazy how God would take something that this is what you do and don't do. But this last one, is not something you do or don't do. This is a matter of the heart. The fact that this would get in maybe shares and tells a little something of where he is wanting. What is the purpose of these rules? Now, is that enough? Is the law the end goal? I mean, if you follow the law and you obey you will live a long and happy life. It's really kind of just a guide to the good life. And your life will be good. You'll be protected and safe. But, just like you as a parent setting up perimeters and rules for your household, I doubt that those rules are all you want from your child. I doubt that that, that, was, that that's the end goal that you just want to create a human that is perfectly fine with just obeying the rules. And as soon as they obey, sweet, your purpose is complete. No. 
you have an end goal, right? Most likely, it would sound something like this. Sounds something to the extent of wanting to raise up an emotionally, physically, spiritually whole adult that loves and honors you and their Lord and chooses to still be a part of your life because they will want you. I think that the end goal of the Father was not the law, was not these Ten Commandments, but to restore a relationship that was broken with him in the fall. Just like you setting up those rules in your household, I think God was setting up the rules of his covenant to set up the restoration of all humanity through Jesus. He had to protect his son Israel so that he could grow and that Jesus could come out of it. There is somebody in the New Testament that had, was confronted with this problem of thinking that the law was enough. In Matthew 19, if you want to go there, you don't have to, but I'm going to talk about it. In Matthew 19, you find the rich young ruler. Now this man came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me. Tell me something. And he's like, follow all the commandments. And he's like, I've, I've done that. I've followed all of them since I was young. And as a rule follower myself, I followed all the rules. And guess what? It wasn't enough for me. I thought that if I followed all the rules, it would give me something. But it doesn't give you anything. <laughs> it just keeps you safe. <laughs> you see... The rich young ruler was asking for something. Give me another rule. Give me another law. Give me something else that I can do to make up for all the wrong that I've done and make it to where God will owe me eternal life. Isn't that ridiculous? Could you imagine if you went up to your father or one of your children came up to you and said, hey, could I do something that would make up for all the love that you gave me? That would make up for all those dirty diapers you had to change? make up for all the times that I complained about the food being too hot or too cold or not tasting good enough or I don't want to go and eat there or this or that. Would you think, is there any one thing that you can do as a child to make up for all the love that your parents have given you? No. Because you are their child and it doesn't matter what you have or have not done. You are theirs. And they want you to just choose to be with them. You see, the rich young ruler was asking for a hoop to jump through. And instead, Jesus invited him into a relationship. He said, go, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything and follow me. And the rich young ruler said, no, 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 no. No, I was asking for a hoop to jump through. I wasn't asking for a relationship. Relationships are messy because guess what? I'm not the only one in control. That means that there's somebody else. This is like mutual and I'm not cool with that. Now, Jesus came to this earth and offered us to enter into a relationship. And in a relationship, it's not just following the rules that matter. In a marriage, if you just don't commit adultery, 
if you just don't do that rule and you follow that rule, is that enough? No. Even a lustful thought about somebody else will hurt your spouse. In a relationship, is it just the fact that you don't murder me? No, like, I'm so motivated by peace, and I'm going to be hurt if there's any amount of, like, just anger or hatred. I'm going to try to figure out how to create peace. Maybe you've heard Jesus say some of these things. Now, there's a couple things that I want to call everyone to. First off, on a human level, if you are a child of someone, just know that your parents, all these rules, they're, they're trying to figure out how to love you and set you up for a relationship with them. And if you are disobeying those rules, you're hurting them because they see the self-destruction that that will lead to. And that hurts. Maybe you shouldn't honor your father and mother and maybe do what they say. Now, to your parents. If we compare this to Israel and God, you play the role of God. But here's the thing, you are not God. In the role of Israel to God, God is the one that is perfect. And Israel is the only one that has to repent. But in this human world, you're not perfect. And maybe it's time for you to go and repent. Maybe it's time, I mean, what will mean more for your children? Will it mean more for them to grow up and realize that to find out that their parents have just been faking it their whole life and trying to convince them in their efforts just to not to make the same mistakes that they once made? Or will it mean more to them to see your humanity and see your brokenness and see how you conquer them through Jesus? That you are not scared to repent and to make your wrongs right. Now, to everyone who is a follower of Christ, these laws, yeah, you might be doing them, but right now I'm calling you to just a heart check to see where your motives are, to see what's at the heart of that. Throw off everything that hinders that gets in the way of you and your Lord. If you're stuck in the law, maybe you're still convinced that you can be good enough to earn the love of your father. You're in a constant moral debate, but in you doing this, you're making a statement with your life that Christ's blood shed on the cross wasn't enough for you. You're being confronted with the same choice that the rich young ruler was confronted with. You're being offered an invitation to a relationship. A relationship where you are no longer the one in control or allowed to rule your life, but a relationship where he is in control, your Lord. But just like in Hebrews, he's also your friend. And maybe you're like little Israel. Maybe you're in a world of so much sin right now where you can't even imagine what it is like 
to have a relationship with God because everything that you are doing right now is hurting your father. And you can't do something and be in a relationship with someone you are hurting constantly. Maybe it's time for you to repent. To take these commandments and listen to them. To trust God's word and step out onto them and say, I'm going to do it your way for, for now. I'm trusting you. Maybe it's time to get your life back to its actual purpose so that you can learn what it's like to have a relationship with the Father that loves you unconditionally. I know we're going to sing. I'm going to pray. The elders will go to the side. If you want to talk, please come talk to us. Father, we love you. We thank you for being our Father.